just a long goodbye And it happens every day When some passerby Invites your eye to come her way Even as she smiles a quick hello You let her go You let the moment fly Too late you turn your head You know you said the long goodbye Nothing says goodbye like a bullet. So goes the slick tagline for Robert Altman's 1973 Los Angeles noir, The Long Goodbye, a private eye tale sitting somewhere in the Venn diagram intersection of Chinatown and The Big Lebowski. Recently selected to the National Film Registry, the film centers around Detective Philip Marlowe, who gives his friend Terry Lennox a courtesy lift into Tijuana. Little does he know this friend will soon be the focal point of a murder-suicide case. Marlowe is perplexed. Could Lennox really do this? What would be the reason? And what do an abusive gangster, an uptight doctor, Arnold Schwarzenegger, an alcoholic novelist, and his worried wife have to do with it all? Perhaps nothing. Marlowe will soon find out. For now, only one question remains. What makes The Long Goodbye so great? Hi, I'm Dylan, and welcome back to Study, episode 45, What Makes the Long Goodbye Great. You're going to want to have already seen the film for this episode, and quick warning, spoilers ahead. The Long Goodbye. The Long Goodbye is a film built on misdirection on both a micro and macro scale, and it takes all kinds of subtle plot work and clever writing to make all the cogs mesh together. But we'll save those for later, because for all these plotting intricacies to fit so seamlessly, it takes a -a one-of-a-kind assembly of names and faces that keep you wondering and guessing, whether intentional or a result of later career successes. Let's set aside Elliot Gould's mumbling protagonist Marlowe for a moment, and focus on the supporting players. The legendary Sterling Hayden of Godfather and Strangelove fame commands the screen as usual, as booming Hemingway wannabe Roger Wade. Alongside Wade is his wife Eileen, played smoothly by Nina Van Pelant, an actress known for popping up in Altman films, performing hybrid folk calypso music as part of the duo Nina and Frederick, and for blowing the whistle on author Clifford Irving, who claimed to have written Howard Hughes' biography as told by Hughes himself, but was later found to have never once talked to the famed aviator. Wade is carefully watched over by one Dr. Verringer, played by Henry Gibson, an Altman acting staple and semi-deadpan poet on the sketch comedy show Rowan and Martin's Laugh-In. Gibson's uptight behavior and odd running form make for a character at the strange crossroads of goofy and imposing. Let's not forget about Philip Marlowe's good friend Terry Lennox, brought to life by Jim Bouton, perhaps not a household name in the acting world, but in the baseball world, an all-star pitcher and credited co-founder of the classic bubblegum Big League Chew. Mark Rydell also sneaks his way into the cast as gangster Marty Augustine, though perhaps you would know him better as the director of On Golden Pond. Now look, if that wasn't enough, you've got David Carradine as a rambling prison inmate, a piano-playing Jack Riley, the voice of Stu Pickles, an impression-cracking gatekeeper Ken Sansom, who would go on to occasionally voice Rabbit from Winnie the Pooh, and the best for last, a shirtless, peck-flexing cameo from the then-unknown governator, Arnold Schwarzenegger. I mean, come on. That is a near-mythological collection of entertainers and cult-cultural figures. 
In a way, it is to serve as the birth of Altman's now-famed tradition of bringing in elite troops of actors and stuffing his films to the brims with cameos. And yet somehow, in the sea of names and faces that propel this movie to casting greatness, it is Mr. Elliot Gould who sets the bar and elevates the performance metric of this movie to its greatest heights. At a character level, Marlowe is a man time has left behind. Dubbed in jest as Rip Van Marlowe by Altman, Marlowe is a man of a different era. One can see this before even delving into his presence on the screen. The name Philip Marlowe is one you may recognize outside of The Long Goodbye as a Raymond Chandler mainstay and focus of the big sleep. Now, writer Lee Brackett, whose career would later capture The Empire Strikes Back, has stripped him down to a new essence. He's been dropped into a cynical, dark L.A. noir, and it's a world he is out of touch with. Marlowe is the only depicted smoker in this movie, and a heavy one at that, chaining cigarettes together scene by scene and skillfully lighting matches on just about every object and surface imaginable. With each match strike in his beat-up suits, one can see a man simply drifting, making the best of it, but without much of a concern or a care for structure or cultural norms. He drives a 1948 Lincoln Continental convertible that sticks out like a sore thumb against more modern vehicles on the road. Watching it glide through a modern beach community is simultaneously effortlessly cool and extraordinarily out of place. Gould conjures both admiration for his time out of touch lifestyle as well as pity for a man who seems at odds with the world around him. A man whose collection of clues throughout the film seems to generate more confusion in him than clarity. The best part is, Marlowe is a character who doesn't really care that you feel either of these things, conveyed by Gould's steadiness. He's getting yanked from location to location, pursuing fruitless leads. He's dealing with immense darkness, whether it be his friend's implication in murder, a likely drunken suicide at sea, or a bottle smashed shockingly over a gangster's girlfriend's face. And yet, somehow, it always simply feels that Marlowe will make it through, that when this tangled up knot is finally undone, Marlowe will still be Marlowe. He's the ultimate go-with-the-flow ambassador, best summed up in his trademark line. It's okay with me. He knows who he is, and what that is he will always be a sentiment often conveyed in a subtle smirk as he navigates conversation. Nobody could pull it off like Gould. Perhaps the biggest pull of Gould's performance is his quips, and when it comes to comedy, this movie shines. There's nothing I can say here to really do justice to many of them, so let's just listen directly to the source, shall we? You got any cotton candy? Right profile. Right. Doing merry-go-round around here. Straight ahead. Straight ahead. Listen, Harry, in case you lose me in traffic, this is the address where I'm going. You Thank look you. great. Harry, I would straighten your tire a little bit. Yeah. Harry, I'm proud to have you following me. Where do you think you're going, Harry? You know, you're not supposed to let me see you following me. Now, button your clothes, be neat, and go sit in the car. Okay. Berenger is out of town. Out of town. In Phoenix. Phoenix, Arizona. May I ask who you are? Certainly. I'm just some guy looking for Dr. Berenger. Those ladies are a lot of help. Crazy ladies. It's okay with me. Gould is not the only one treated to a heavy dose of dialogue and banter that leaves a laugh. Take gangster Marty Augustine. I love you. I sleep with a lot of girls, but I make love to you, right? Which, by the way, is followed by a not-so-comical dive into darkness. Or Roger Wade. Oh, no. It's Minnie Mouse. It's the albino turd himself. 
Peter Pan. No. The White Knight. Your name. I've forgotten your name. I've, I've seen you, but I don't know your name. Or how about the aforementioned gatekeeper whose Stanwick and Jimmy Stewart impressions had me rolling? Barbara Stanwyck. I've been working on Barbara Stanwyck. I'll show you. All right. I don't understand. I don't understand it at all. I've never understood it, Walter. I just don't understand why I don't understand it all. I don't understand. Hi. Walter, what can I do for you? I have an appointment with Mrs. Uh, Roger Wade. Now, what's her first name? Eileen. Now, well, what's their address? Jimmy Stewart? Right. Right. Go on in. Thanks. The laughs are supported by Altman's famed overlapping dialogue, which keeps conversations moving at a beautifully witty pace. A method of his really so infamous and so rich that I best leave it out of this analysis beyond that simple point. Now let's get back to the beginning of this dissertation, the aforementioned machinations of the story. Because as for the web of character threads and questions that a noir requires, the long goodbye excels. It features grade A noir plot weaving and complexity as the genre calls for. Our protagonist must journey deeper and deeper into a world or a question he was previously oblivious to. In this case, it being, is my friend Terry Lennox truly a murderer? Our protagonist must drive past exit ramps and refuse to take the easy way out, curiosity getting the better of him. Our protagonist must meet a mysterious character that complicates the basic question into, how is blank involved? A tangent must be followed that drags the hero off his path, misdirects and misleads, and asks, how does blank fit into all of this? And does it at all? In fact, there are many of these tangents, and it is up to the audience to sort out the red herrings as Marlowe uncovers more and more. And at long last, some hidden connections must be revealed. Final information brought out seamlessly yet with surprise. The aha moment. The long goodbye hits these classic beats with ease without ever feeling cliched or contrived. It serves the genre while using the wise-cracking protagonist as a vehicle to lampoon it, to not take itself so seriously. It is an impressively delicate balance struck flawlessly. This is all set against the brilliant backdrop of a 1970s Los Angeles equal parts sun-soaked and shrouded by the unknown dark and dreary. From a posh Malibu beach house to a bustling grimy jail, from a luxurious white-towered apartment complex in the hills to a jungle-like hospital complex, The Long Goodbye captures a variety of distinctly Los Angeles locations of distinctly Los Angeles architecture and aesthetic. In one moment, a Malibu beach hosts a cool summer gathering. Moments later, that beach is the site of a tragic death at night. It is this juxtaposition that makes Altman's depiction of the city so compelling. The film is not interested in painting one single picture of the city, but in dabbling in many different settings and creating a larger and more interesting mosaic, albeit with many more of the wealthier settings in light of some of the film's central characters. The sun-soaked aspect is of particular note, however. Partly to account for the brute sunlight of the region, Altman went for a soft pastel look, his inspiration was old postcards in the 1940s, and it certainly lends a dreamy, nearly otherworldly feel to the film in certain scenes, strongly supporting the man-out-of-time idea of Mr. Rip Van Marlowe. Here, it is an old time renewed. One more note on the cinematography while we are here. There is an interesting touch of voyeurism to the camera movement and positioning throughout the long goodbye. A simple seaside conversation between Marlowe and Roger Wade is viewed by a camera slowly drifting back and forth across the patio dollying in and out. In fact, the camera moves in practically every shot in this film. It's a careful dance of a free onlooker that serves the noir stylings of the film, just as much as it serves as another Altman, playful, tongue-in-cheek nod to the dramatic dollies and gliding pans of the genre's old school. We also view Wade buttheads with Eileen through glass, 
Marlowe interrogated by policemen through a one-way mirror, and a chat with the Tijuana police through the spindles of a balcony railing. With these obstructions, we are constantly set up as an observer keeping to the shadows, as rogue and wandering as Marlowe's cat, perhaps getting a closer look than we should, only given a clear view at deliberate times. It's perfect for a film where our protagonist never quite has the full picture and is piecing together parts from worlds he doesn't belong to and doesn't want to. This is also emphasized by the negative space occasionally surrounding Marlowe, highlighting an outsider adrift in a world much larger than him. Let's move into a very peculiar aspect of this film, the music. The film is anchored by the titular track of The Long Goodbye, cycled over and over in different genres, by different singers, and in different situations for Marlowe. However, the most prominent is a smooth jazz track sung by Jack Sheldon, who astute listeners may recognize as the performer of such schoolhouse rock classics as I'm Just a Bill and Conjunction Junction. And oh yeah, these melodies were worked out by none other than film score superstar John Williams, working outside of his usual sweeping orchestral anthem work in a jazz setting. I told you, a mythical collection of figures. As alluded to, the score moves far beyond this perfect jazz riff. The tune is transposed into a supermarket jingle, a meandering acoustic guitar riff, and a personal favorite of mine, a doorbell. Each unique take on the theme sets the mood for the variety of locations Marlowe drops in on and the eccentric Californians he meets. Along with Marlowe, it's one of the few constants in a world filled with ulterior motives and withheld information, a through line that adds a whole other layer of enjoyment to the film just in trying to detect it in its various iterations. There is one deviation from the title track and its stylistically differing siblings, and it transitions us perfectly into the film's peak. Hooray for Hollywood. Marlowe's wild goose chase takes him back to Mexico for the third time. An offer of a grand president to purchase many cobblestones helps him fill in the gaps with the police, in an explanation that feels less like a forced grand reveal and more like an earned enlightenment after Marlowe's long road. At long last, he comes face to face with his old buddy who just needed a lift, Terry Lennox, very much alive. Yes, Terry committed the crime, and yes, Terry is both legitimately and metaphorically in bed with Eileen Wade, and was carrying mob money, and used Marlowe to get out of it all, adding insult to injury when you realize your friend is a brutal murderer. Marlowe makes his lone major step out of passivity when he pulls the trigger thus completing a very long and very convoluted goodbye to an old friend turned elusive enemy. Nothing was ever quite as it seemed to Marlowe until his final sequences of clarity. The times are changing. The trust Marlowe thought he had gave way to abuse and villainy. His world has been left behind, and there's a much darker one outside of him now. He doesn't feel the need to confront it, but it comes to confront him. It's aggressive, it's manipulative, corrupt, and angry, and it comes uncomfortably close. Marlowe makes one major stand against it here. It's a powerful, I'm still here statement, of course coupled with a vintage Marlowe quip. The hell, nobody cares. Yeah, nobody cares but me. Well, that's you, Marlowe. You'll never learn, you're a born loser. Yeah, I even lost my cat. <laughs> With an inverting wink and a nod to Carol Reed's The Third Man, a gleeful Marlowe skips past the driving Eileen Wade, tiny harmonica in hand, and in comes Hooray for Hollywood. The song indicates Marlowe, his old ways and values, his lost time is at the moment triumphant over the chaos of now. 
Is it an optimism about a return of his values? That his time has more to give? That the calm, collected mindset always finds its way through? Or is it a final salute and send-off to them? That they can only be sustainable for so much longer? That time has indeed long passed it by? It's a perfect ending with this perfect question up for debate. But for now, hooray for Hollywood indeed. The mellow Marlowe's wandered his way to the top. And, among a million other aforementioned praises, that, I think, is what makes the long goodbye great. All right, everybody, that was Study episode 45, What Makes the Long Goodbye Great. You may remember I did an episode of this format on 12 Angry Men. This is a little bit of a deeper cut than 12 Angry Men, uh, but I had a lot of thoughts. I wanted to get them out there. I know it's spoiler-filled. Probably a lot of people are not as familiar with this movie, but uh, I don't know. I guess uh, one for you, one for me. <laughs> uh, hopefully you did enjoy this episode if you did listen up to this point. If you listened without any knowledge of the movie... I did spoil it a lot, but I still encourage you to check it out because it is a fantastic watch. I do really like this format because I can kind of pick away at it when I have a little bit of free time here and there. I can write some more of the sort of speech that I give, the sort of essay that I read off here. I remember when I made the 12 Angry Men one, I kind of had the idea of like, hey, I can do this a lot more frequently because of that. Of course I didn't. I mean, you saw on Instagram, I posted it. I did three episodes in 2021. Nice, Dylan. Great job. Really, really great for the podcast. Three episodes. Um, I, you know, I've, I've been down this road before. I talk about this practically every episode. I am a student. Life is busy. I've got a lot of commitments. I wish I could prioritize this one. It's not feasible. It's not sustainable for me to do that amidst everything else. Like I said, I wish I could, but I'll still get episodes out when I can. Next episode should be a ranking of 2021 releases like I normally do this time of year. Looking forward to the Oscars. But yeah, I just appreciate those of you that stand by while I churn out basically no episodes and still listen once I finally pop back in your feed. Again, I know I say this every episode, but it does mean a lot, so thank you to those of you who still listen and uh, don't beat me up over the fact that I cannot produce episodes. I wish I could, but again, I appreciate those of you that stand patiently and wait and listen when an episode arrives. Since the last episode, which was The Green Knight, I appeared on Spoilers to talk Heathers, as well as Big Dumb Movie to talk about Scream. I encourage you to go listen to both of those episodes, really just those podcasts in general. I uh, had a lot of fun talking those movies with those guys. And I think that's really it. Uh, so thank you for listening to this episode of Study episode 45, What Makes the Long Goodbye Great. Check me out on Instagram at Podcast. You can email me, Podcast at gmail.com. Facebook's kind of gone by the wayside. Don't worry about that. But if you want to see everything I watch, some rankings I make that don't end up on the feed, that is, of course, Letterboxd at Film Dylan. And uh, yeah, that wraps her up. So thank you guys for listening, and I'll catch you next time.
okay with me.